The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. I'm Victoria Moran, and so happy to be spending this hour with you to talk about my favorite subject, which is eating plants and sparing animals and changing the world. It's all so exciting. And today, I get to wish everyone a joyous kickoff to the holiday season. Yes, I know it's only September 30th, but in the vegetarian world, our end-of-the-year holiday season actually starts right about now. You see, because the birthday of Mahatma Gandhi and the birthday of um, St. Francis both come very early in October, we end up with some kind of vegetarian holidays. So Gandhi's birthday is the 2nd. St. Francis' birthday is the 3rd, so October 1 is World Vegetarian Day. October 2 is both World Day for Farmed Animals and also International Day of Nonviolence, which is really at the root of being vegan after all. And then in a month, November 1st, we'll have World Vegan Day. I totally believe in celebrating everything and hope you're celebrating something wonderful today. After our first break, I'm going to be bringing on a guest that, oh golly, I've been trying to get him for such a long time. But the way that things work out in the world, it's absolutely perfect because Dr. Garth Davis is going to be joining us with his new book, About to Birth. It's called Protein Aholic. 
how our obsession with meat is killing us and what we can do about it. So that's going to be really, really exciting stuff. And right now, I want to introduce you to someone that you've met before. She's co-hosted this show with me, and that is Danielle Legg. Danielle Legg is a Main Street Vegan Certified Vegan Lifestyle Coach and Educator. She is also a licensed veterinary technician, and she is just the helper-outer to all the vegans here in New York City. I mean, she works with Ann and Danny Shannon of Betty Goes Vegan. She works with uh, pastry chef Frank Costigan, Vegan Chocolate, and with Joy Pearson of the wonderful Candle family of restaurants, Candle Cafe, Candle Cafe West, Candle 79. She totally has her finger on the pulse of what it means to be vegan as a young, chic, smart woman today. And she did the coolest thing for her last birthday. So I brought her on the show today to talk about it. Hey, Danielle. Hello. So you just had a birthday. I did. I had my 35th birthday. Day, and I felt like I had to do something cool and big. And so I uh, I took a card from the Mike Stura deck of cards because he always saves animals. And he just opened an amazing and gigantic sanctuary, which means he has more room to rescue more animals. Um, and so I called Mike and I said, if I get a bird, can you take her or him? And he said, how are you going to get a bird? And I'm like, I'm going to ask the slaughterhouse. And he's like, okay, I'll take it. So they were closed on my birthday, and I felt like the worst vegan ever wishing they were open. Um, so I actually went the Friday after my birthday, and I asked if I could have a chicken and if I could take her to a sanctuary. And the man that was there told me I had to come back the next day, and I asked him to promise me I could have a bird. And he said he couldn't promise but to come back and talk to the owner. And this slaughterhouse is very close to my home. And I'd actually walked by several times and had been given a tour with my dog. So uh, I went back the next day and I was so excited to see that the person who is the owner was actually the person who I'd always interacted with. So when I saw him, I kind of felt relieved. And I just said it was my 35th birthday. I really wanted to save the chicken and take her to a sanctuary. And he asked, big or small? (laughs) And I, I couldn't answer the question. I said, whoever you choose, because I felt like if I chose big or small, I was basically saying that one should die while the other one shouldn't. Um, so he chose um, a chick, like really a small white bird. And I was so excited. And then I brought her to the sanctuary, which was quite an adventure on the train. And... <laughs> Like the lady with a chicken in a cage. And then um, I actually went back to the slaughterhouse to thank them. And I brought donuts. And they asked how much I wanted for the donuts. And I said, you don't have to pay me chicken. And I said, (laughs) how about another chicken? And so he told me that if I came back, um, I could have another chicken. So I actually got to save two chickens for my birthday and donuts. That is really exciting. <laughs> now, your roommate is co-owner of Dunwell Donuts, which are vegan. Yes, all the donuts are vegan. Um, everything that they do is vegan, and they also have all vegan milks, which is pretty amazing. Uh, that, that is pretty wonderful. In my hometown of Kansas City, <clears throat> we have a vegan coffee shop. That really mm-hmm. needs to spread around the country and the planet. But I think a lot of people are thinking, what, wait a minute, Brooklyn, huh, slaughterhouse? Aren't aren't slaughterhouses all hidden out in the far reaches of rural areas? You've got a slaughterhouse in your neighborhood? 
Yeah, in Brooklyn, there are actually slaughterhouses all over the place, um, and they're live slaughterhouses. So it's not it, you go in and you pick who will die, and then they kill the animal and you take the animal home. Um, the slaughterhouse by me only has birds and then rabbits sometimes, um, but there are slaughterhouses that also have goats, um, small sheep. I mean, they're they are all over Brooklyn, and Mike has actually rescued many animals from the live slaughterhouses. And he really just goes in and says, I I want this animal. And Mike is, you know, he can be an intimidating guy. And I felt like if if Mike can do it, I can do it. And then I realized I have no of the intimidation factor. None of it, like zero. I'm just like, hey, animal. But uh, I got really lucky just being nice to these people. I didn't have to be mean. I have never been mean to them. I've always smiled. Um, I definitely think it's a misconception, though. I mean, I grew up in rural Ontario, New York. There was a butcher, and to me, that was like a slaughterhouse. Like, I had no idea until I was 29 that slaughterhouses were like a a thing. I sort of figured it's like, oh, you know, one person kills a few animals. That's where food comes from. I just didn't know. Um, Toronto also had a a pig slaughterhouse. And there are these huge high-rise condos all made of glass. And so if you have one of the condos in the back, it would actually overlook a giant dog park, which was amazing to watch, but right across the street from that dog park was a slaughterhouse where you can hear and smell everything. And I think unless you're right in that area, you may have just went right by it. You know, so for me, sort of the skyline of Toronto, what I remember is that there's a slaughterhouse like right at the bottom of that big needle, you know. Uh, It's amazing. I guess we see what we want to see. Now, I know that some people said to you, well, you shouldn't have talked to those people. You shouldn't have nicely asked for a chicken. You should have been protesting the slaughterhouse. What do you say Mm -hmm. to that? You know, it's not me to protest a slaughterhouse. I think everything that I've that I've learned in, in this person for me and my experience with the people that work there maybe there are monsters. I mean, I'm sure that there are monsters that work at slaughterhouses, but this is for people who have families and are doing what they can to, to supply for their families. For me to stand outside and say that they should close or what they're doing is, is wrong, even though I don't agree with it means that I, what are they going to do for income instead? And what are they, where are they going to shop? Like at the bodegas that have everything in a box, you know? So I, I don't advocate, advocate to do that. I think if I had ever been outside protesting this small slaughterhouse, there's no chance I could have saved anyone's life. I I would have gotten a no before I could even ask. Mm. And I didn't, you know, and then I went back after saving both of the chickens and I showed them pictures and they were really curious, like, what do you feed a chicken? Aren't they dirty? And I said, no, they're just like cats. Like she loved sitting on my shoulder, the one, uh, the second chicken that I rescued. And it was just such a magical little, I have a photo of her just sitting on my shoulder and she's just hanging out and we were spending time together. And it, it makes them think like, oh, these aren't just this thing. Like this person has a reason to really care about these animals. And they said, like they laughed and he said, you really like chickens. And I'm like, I do. Ah. So, you know, I would rather do that than protest and, and maybe make them think a little bit more about the value of that animal. And this is their job is, I mean, this is how they make money is to, sell these animals. I did not pay for either of these animals. They gave them to me. So that means that there is something there that they're thinking that we're okay to not make money on these two animals that they could have made money on. 
I think sometimes we communicate with people subliminally. And I think just the fact that you care for these animals as mm-hmm. individuals and as beings somehow was communicated to this person who would probably be doing another job if he had right. another option. Oh, sure. It's certainly an extremely unpleasant and dangerous occupation. Yeah. So, Danielle, tell us quickly, um, people can help with these chickens? So what I did was um, the chickens that I rescued are actually broilers. And all of the chickens that Mike had at Skyline, Skyland's Animal Sanctuary are actually egg layers. So they're very different chickens. Um, egg layers are much smaller. Um, broilers are very large birds, so they cannot be housed together. So basically what, what I did was cost them a new chicken house. Um, so what I did is I started a crowdfunder to offset the cost of a new chicken house for the broilers that I rescued. And if you just go to CrowdRise and then in the search put in Skylands Animal Sanctuary, you'll see my um, fundraiser for them. And right now it's the only one up. So Wonderful. And we will also put that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net slash blog, along with all sorts of fascinating information about Garth Davis, MD, and his new book, Proteinaholic, which is coming up right after these messages. Stay with us. I'm so excited. programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com. 
Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. So happy to have you with us today. I live in New York City, as you know, and today I was in Times Square. And I looked up, and there was a great big billboard. I mean, prime real estate on 42nd Street, a bikini-clad model, and it said, is your body beach ready? Well, if it's not, that's okay, because all you have to do is go to proteinworlds.com and buy some protein stuff. And then you will be like the quadruple super duper model who is smiling over all of Times Square. And I thought how perfect to see that today because I am going to be speaking in the next moment or so with Garth Davis, MD, author of Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Dr. Davis is medical director of the Davis Clinic at Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. He is a bariatric physician and surgeon, starred on the hit TLC show Big Medicine, recently named a super doc by Texas Monthly. He lives in Houston with his family. Welcome, Dr. Garth Davis. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it is wonderful to have you on. As I was telling you during the break, I, I've known of your work, obviously, and I've, I've seen things about you, but it was when I heard you on Juicing Radio, which is one of my favorite podcasts for dog walking and treadmill walking, that right. I was like, you've got to get this guy on and get him on quickly. So your book arrived, lucky me, this morning. I have an advanced copy here. And... The first thing I thought of was when regular people see this book, they're going to think that it's called The Sky is Not Blue, Up is Down, and The World is Not What We Have Always Believed. Right. What well, I mean, I hope they do that because... Shout it out. Yeah, I mean, I hope they do that because what we're doing right now isn't working. Like, I, you know, patients come in and I start telling them the stuff. They're like, but wait... What about my protein? I'm like, well, are you eating lots of protein? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to get as much protein as possible. Then why are you in a weight loss doctor's office? Uh, and that's because this protein diets don't work. They never have, and they're, they, um, they've got years of failure and disease to show for it. We eat more protein in any other country in the world. We're the sickest country in the world. And so I do hope people take a very critical look at what they believe to be true because a lot of what they believe to be true is making them sick. Well, tell us your story. How did you get from that camp over here? Well, you know, it kind of started, you know, you go through medical school, and, and um, medical school is interesting. It really teaches a, a fascinating, I mean, you could really understand, having gone through it, how we could have a problem uh, with Western medicine and, and not getting enough preventative care, because there's just not a lot of talk about prevention in, in medical school. The whole idea in medical school is to treat disease, and, and 
And it's so disconnected from the person, too. I mean, you know, like a patient will be in a room, and we don't even call the patient Mrs. Smith or, or whatever. We, we say the colon cancer in room one. Uh, and, you know, the, every patient has, like, you know, a cardiologist who's just worried about the heart, and an infectious disease doctor is just worried about the bugs, and a gastroenterologist just worried about the stomach. And no one's really looking at the whole person and what they do, and we're not really looking at why all these diseases that we have are affecting us. And I never thought about it when I was in medical school. We never learned nutrition. I came out and started treating people for obesity, and my solution, of course, was to uh, do these massive surgeries. I didn't really pay much attention to diet. In fact, I would go to these, I mean, could you, if you could picture this, we go to these meetings, like uh, one of mine's coming up right now, it's called Obesity Week. For a week, we talk about obesity and the problems of obesity and how to treat it, and no one really talks about diet. I mean, it's all about, you know, what surgery can we do and what medicine can we do. And, and so um, then I got... Um, you know, serendipitously, about the time, a few things were happening at the same time. Like, uh, I was starting to see patients that I was treating uh, for weight loss and their weight loss surgery, and I was telling them to go on a high-protein diet because that's all that I knew, and they were coming back gaining weight. And at the same time, I was doing a high-protein diet because I thought that was the best for building muscles, but I wasn't building muscle. I was just building fat around the midsection. And then... I went and got my eyes checked, and they found that I had cholesterol deposits in my eyes, and I went and got that checked out. And In fact, I had really high cholesterol and high blood pressure and irritable bowel syndrome and all these things. And I stopped for a second and said, well, wait a second. I mean, are we just broken? Are we supposed to be this ill? And so I started looking around the world and looking at the diets that other people eat and, and, the, and the vast amount of research there was on diet that we just weren't taught in medical school or as physicians. And it really started changing my perspective. And, you know, the more I changed my diet, the more my health improved, the health of my family improved, and eventually the health of my patients. That is a fascinating story. And when you talk about the meetings, you really take me back because my dad was a physician. He started out as an ENT, but he kind of gravitated more into the very early version of being a weight loss doctor back in in the 1960s. And I can remember in 1965, he brought me home this diet from a convention in Las Vegas where a whole lot of them seemed to take place. And it's what we would now call Atkins, except I think it was Stillman. It was somebody before Atkins saying the same thing. And I can remember my dad telling me that that protein would go and find a piece of fat on my leg, and it would just (laughs) gobble it up. And I kind of had these like Pac-Man thoughts of how that was going to work. But what is so scary is that it was weird back then, but people are still getting versions of that same kind of myth. They are. Um, you know, I was at a meeting recently where the head of the American Society of Bariatric Medicine from Duke got up at the convention and said, there's absolutely zero reason for anybody to ever eat any carbs. And he gave a diet that he gives his patients that you just cannot believe, like eggs and bacon for breakfast, a burger without the bun for lunch. I mean, the whole thing was just the, it was like a slaughterhouse worth of food. And the funny thing is I was looking at the, at the meal plan that he, that he gives his patients in somewhat of shock and horror, and I was thinking to myself, that's the exact diet that my patients eat when they come to see me. Um, and I, I don't know, there's this amazing disconnect between the actual facts of science and, and what we're telling people. A lot of it's industry. He, he's, he's sponsored by Atkins itself, so Atkins pays him. Uh, and uh, a lot of the... Um, uh, a lot of research. In fact, the, the Dairy Council had a meeting where they, the, the goal of the meeting was to neutralize the science 
showing dairy is bad for you. So, you know, we're competing with, with some really bad science out there and scientists that are paid to try to confuse the public. So do you think that your colleagues who espouse these very, very different ideas from what you and I think is sane and what the science seems to indicate when we read it, do they really believe it? Um, so a lot of physicians do believe it because they don't know the science. Like I gave a talk recently to a, uh, a bunch of weight loss surgeons about protein and I just got up there and I just started, I was like, I just want to know how much you guys know about the science out there. Has anybody heard of the EPIC study? Now, the EPIC study is the largest study ever where they've prospectively followed people. It's in your 500,000 people over 12 years so far. It keeps growing. And they have this unbelievably enormous database that has been put through rigorous statistical analysis. It, it's been multiple articles published in multiple top journals. Not a single doctor there had ever heard of the EPIC study. Uh, likewise, they'd never heard of the Adventist Health Study. Uh, many of them knew about the Nurses Health Study and the um, Health Profession Study, but they didn't know much about it. So doctors just don't know the science. They don't. This isn't something that they study because they don't study nutrition. Um, they've got a very, very layperson understanding uh, of nutrition, and. You top that off with some confusing articles out there by the industry, and they, you know, the physicians themselves are getting confused. Secondly, high-protein diets like Atkins will work in the very, very short term, and they're easy for a doctor to prescribe. And they get a short-term success with it, and so, and that short-term success can be explained very easily with just water weight loss, because there's a lot of water weight loss when you go on a high-protein diet and deplete your glycogen stores, which are stored with water. And then the other thing is with with the, an Atkins diet, people tend to get uh, they get ketosis, and the ketosis makes them nauseated, not as hungry, so they don't eat as many calories. But that only lasts a few months. But that's enough for the doctor to say, well, I did something. It worked. And then when it fails, what they say is, well, you're failing the diet. And patients feel this, too. You know, patients come to me, and they're like, I did the Atkins. It worked for a while, but then I failed the diet. Uh, you know, I couldn't keep up with it. I couldn't do it. And they're blaming themselves as if this was a willpower issue, but the, the simple fact of it is the body won't let them do it. Uh, that's a emergency uh, process where you go into ketosis, and it's not going to let you stay in that process. And so the diet fails the people. The people don't fail the diet, but that's not how they feel. So why is it that some people go on one of these diets, a paleo or something, and they really do feel better. I mean, they, they swear up and down. They feel wonderful. What has changed? Are they just delusional, or is there something physiological that is better about it than whatever they were doing before? Right. So, um, I mean, first of all, there's you know genetic differences between people. Um, a lot of the times, like a lot of people, there, there's definitely a placebo effect for sure. Uh, I mean, people believe so strongly in in the lunacy that is the paleo diet that they will, you know, they, it's almost like a cult now, and they will uh, believe it just like cult people believe they're people. But I, I, the, the, paleo is a little bit different because paleo does have things that Atkins doesn't. Like paleo says no dairy, and paleo says absolutely no junk food. And so while you could eat an almost standard American diet and still be on an Atkins diet, you can't do that on a paleo diet. I mean, a lot of the junk food that people typically eat gets eliminated with the paleo diet. And, um, and so that's a huge advantage. The other thing is the paleo diet goes very hand-in-hand hand with exercise and this idea of running around and not sitting because that wasn't very paleo to sit around. Um, 
And so, you know, a lot of times, like, paleo is highly related with the CrossFit. So here you got these young 28-year-old guys, you know, working out insanely every day uh, and then, you know, having good results because of that and in spite of, I would say, their diet, not because of it. But the, the, the real problem, with, I think, with diets is that we look at such a short term on them, like, oh, let me see if I can lose weight over the next few weeks. Let me see what my results are in four months, five months, instead of let's see what our results are over 10 years of this change in our lifestyle. That's where you really get to see the benefit of one diet versus the next. So tell us about what you tell people. Let's say I'm in Houston and I am, as I once was, 65 pounds overweight, and I wander into your office and say I've been on every diet there is. Do something. Yeah, well, I mean, first we have a discussion about what every diet there is because the vast majority of diets are high-protein diets. So there's very very few times that someone's been on a diet where it's not a high-protein diet. And so we kind of – I first kind of go into what are, are people's concepts of foods, like what's a healthy food. Like, for instance, I give an example in the book, but it's one of my favorite examples. I had a patient that came to see me from Ghana, and I was asking her about, you know, why does she think she's going uh, gained weight because she's a very intelligent lady and engineer – and she tells me, well, I don't know why I've gained weight. I do everything right. I eat eggs for breakfast. I eat chicken for lunch, chicken for dinner. I eat a lot of chicken, and I can't figure out why I'm gaining weight. And she goes, the real reason I think I'm gaining weight is the carbs. And I said, well, wait a second. You haven't told me that you eat any carbs. She goes, yeah, I know I don't, but uh, from time to time, my friends from Ghana come over, and we have a traditional Ghana meal, and that's loaded with carbs. And I said, well, that's interesting because I just happened to be studying Ghana, and Ghana has an extremely low rate of obesity, and they found that people on a traditional Ghana diet have the lowest rates of obesity, the ones that ate the most fruit, whereas the people in the more civilized uh, or built-up westernized parts of Ghana have the... uh, have the highest rates of obesity. I said, well, what does it look like when you go to Ghana? And she said, well, funny enough, no one's overweight. And by the way, I lived there for two months, and I actually lost weight when I was there. And I was like, what were you eating? She goes, well, the typical Ghana diet. So, you know, it's it's easy to see there that this idea that it's protein that she needs to be eating has made her very, you know, go away from a traditional diet that, you know, keeps her ancestors and her weight off. And so getting people to realize the ridiculousness. You know, everyone, every time I tell them, you know, you're eating too much protein, why I, that can't be. Everyone's told me to eat protein. And I'm like, yeah, and everyone's overweight and the country's sick. And, uh, you know, it's never worked for anybody. So why keep, you know, it's the definition of insanity, doing what you've always done and getting what you always got. Wow, that's amazing. So what what do you tell, well, I guess you'd tell her to just eat the Ghana diet. She already knows what to do. How about somebody who's eating the Texas diet? What do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, the, what we go back to, first of all, I, I don't like this talking about proteins versus fats versus carbs, because really what we should be talking about is whole food. Now, of course, that makes that sounds hypocritical since my whole book is about protein, but I, I'd say at the beginning of the book that I had to go reductionist in order to uh, take on this, because, because no matter what I tell people about whole foods and I tell them to go and eat an apple, when I look at their diet logs later, they haven't eaten an apple, they've eaten beef jerky, when I ask them why, it's because, well, they have more protein. So I really had to address protein, and so I, I've got to get into that with people. But after that, I really stopped talking about fats versus carbs. People are like, well, how many carbs should I get? How many fats should I get? I'm like, I don't want you to count anything. 
So my big thing is I don't like the counting. I feel like the, the weighing the food and the counting and the measuring is a really, really uh, big problem. It makes people obsessed with food and constantly thinking about food. And instead, I start teaching them about whole food plant-based diets. Um, I don't tell them to go vegan uh, necessarily, um, but that the plate needs to change. I mean, the American diet is so unbelievably dominated by animal protein at every single meal uh, that I really, you know, we, the average, only about 3% of Americans are getting the RDA, which to me is low, uh, RDA level of fiber. Uh, we are so fiber deficient, it's, it's unreal. And so what I go over with people is, is how to build a high fiber plant-based diet, um, where you could eat as much as you want. You're eating whole foods. You're staying away from processed junk food. And you're using the animal proteins and animal foods, um, much less frequently, and when you do, it's more as a condiment or a side dish rather than the main meal. So in your subtitle, you very bravely say how our obsession with meat is killing us. And so often, I think people have the idea, we know junk food is bad. We know that highly refined and processed foods are bad. We know that processed meats are bad. But... The other problem with meat is just, well, you really like animals. Well, I happen to really like animals. But there are problems with meat. What, what are those problems? Oh, I mean, there's so many. Um, the, um, you know, we go through the list of things that happen when you eat meat. But, um, you know, everyone's talking about inflammation and gluten causes inflammation and this causes inflammation, that causes inflammation. But inflammation after the consumption of meat is intense and far higher than any of these other things. In fact, you don't really even measure any inflammation when you eat sugar or when you eat um, gluten. But when you eat meat, immediately there's inflammation in the body uh, due to something called endotoxins that's in the meat. Meat also has something called advanced glycolated end products. And when you cook meat, you get something called heterocyclic amines. And there's thermoresistant um, viruses that are in these animals. And all of these things have been implicated in causing... Uh, diseases. On top of that, meat has what's called heme iron, and heme iron is extremely oxidizing uh, and, and can create free radicals and has been shown to damage the pancreas. Meat causes fat to go into muscle cells and cause diabetes. Uh, meat increases your IGF-1, which is a hormone that, that causes cancer cells to grow. Uh, and the list goes on. And when you eat meat, you form N-nitroso compounds, which are related to colon cancer. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on, the problems with meat. And then the other problems with meat is the opportunity cost, which is to say that if you eat meat, which is very calorie-dense and, and very thick, you tend not to have room for the foods that are better for you. Or if you think that you need to get more protein so you eat meat, in place of fruits or vegetables, you're missing out on the phytonutrients and the fiber that are so essential for our health. And mm -hmm. so it's this concept that these things are healthy when they're, they're, they're definitely not healthy. And I go into a lot of scientific detail in the book with a lot of different articles showing that meat is highly associated with diabetes, cancer, hypertension, heart disease, and a shorter life. Now how about plant proteins? Some people just feel that even on a, a plant source diet, they feel better if they're not eating as much brown rice and quinoa and that sort of thing as some other people and they're doing a little bit more of, of the tofu and whatnot, is is too much plant protein also problematic? You know, funny enough, it, it hasn't shown itself to be that way, but there's not a lot of overeating of plant-based protein. Now, I will say when you look at vegetarians and vegans, they tend to get way more than the RDA 
recommend a daily allowance. So there, there really are no protein deficient vegans. Or for, it, it, that's somewhat of a myth. They actually get more than they need. The real question comes in some very advanced science, and that science is looking at you know calorie restriction to live longer. And it may not be calorie restriction, but it may be eating less minerals and eating less protein in general, especially the the amino acid leucine, because leucine activates an enzyme that that causes aging. This is kind of complex science. The bottom line is there's no reason to eat excess protein. And while we don't think that plant-based protein causes nearly the problems, all those things I listed for the problems with meat, you don't get that in plant-based protein. You don't get the, um, you know, the N-nitroso compounds and the heterocyclic amines and all that stuff. But I, I wouldn't I don't see there's any reason to do a soy protein shake. I mean, if you eat tofu, great, and I eat tofu all the time, but I don't go out of my way to try to get extra protein because I don't think there's any need for extra protein. My body gets enough just in my typical daily meals, and if that daily meal has tofu in it because I like tofu in that meal, that's great, but it's not uh, not a necessity. I see. And how about, it seems that obesity and diabetes are always paired together, and people with uh, diabetes in their family, people who have been told that they're in this pre-diabetic kind of limbo, are afraid of that apple that you were telling people to eat. So what about diabetes? Yeah, I mean, diabetes is interesting because, first of all, there's never been a single study, not one, and there's been multiple studies to the contrary that show that fruits are actually fantastic for diabetes. So this concept that fruit makes diabetes worse is a little bit ridiculous. But what happens, I mean, diabetes is not caused by carbs. And this has been studied multiple times, but that EPIC study I told you before, when they looked at, you know, 500,000 people over all the years, the number one um, reason for um, developing diabetes was animal protein. And the reasons are complex. Part of it might be that heme iron I talked about, which damages the pancreatic islet cells that make the insulin. But the other reason, the real problem we get diabetes is because of fat not because of carbs. What happens is our bodies need carbs. They love carbs. They use carbs for their daily energy cycles. Insulin is secreted, and insulin is kind of the door opener, the gate opener that allows sugar to get into the cells so the cells could utilize it for energy. The problem is sugar also, I mean, insulin also lets in fat. And if you're eating really like a donut loaded in sugar that will stimulate insulin but loaded in fat, that will get the fat into the cells. Or if you eat a steak, which, by the way, protein and animal proteins stimulate insulin secretion, and they're loaded with fat, it drives fat into the muscle cells. Now, once you get fat in the muscle cells, the, the muscle cells get clogged, and then they can't, the insulin no longer works to open up the gate, and the sugar can't come in, and the sugar builds up. So if you're eating tons of meat and fat, and you eat an apple, your sugar will go up. But if you're not eating meat and fat, and if you, like we've done in different studies, taken people off of meat and dairy and fatty foods and junk foods and instead given them nothing but fruits and vegetables and beans and whole grains, the fat gets out of those muscle cells. The muscle cells then can respond to insulin and the diabetes goes away. Amazing. So when people out there in the world who get their health information largely from the Dr. Oz show, uh, reading women's magazines and big articles that come in newspapers every now and then. It's so confusing. For example, we have long heard that the snack needs to be some protein and some carb. 
So do you tell your patients to have their fruit with a few nuts or just fruit by itself? How do you get it down to the actual what Yeah, I mean, eating? that food, that what's called food combining is complete nonsense. And, you know, I, I find it very hard now to tell people what to uh, what to believe and what to read because there's so much nonsense out there. I mean, every day I turn it on, I'm like, gosh, people just, it's like we've totally forgotten that there's such a thing called science. And the, and the funny thing about it is, and the, the industry realized this, and it's an old tobacco trip, uh, old tobacco trick. If you can create any kind of doubt, you win. So in other words, there might be thousands of articles showing saturated fat causes heart disease. But you get one article, and in, in the current situation, that article was sponsored by meat, dairy, and egg, and you get one article to question that, and all of a sudden you've got all these journalists and stuff holding up this one article as if pr- that one article alone is proof that the other thousands of articles are wrong. And so that doubt creates this kind of, uh, I don't know, apathy or relativism in the world where people just don't know what to believe, so they just continue eating the way they've always eaten. And that's, that's you know, a really sad phenomena uh, that I see on a daily basis. Well, I'm sure you do. Now, you have a, a questionnaire here. Is animal protein making you sick? I'm going to go through this really quickly. There are 10 points. Abs- uh, you'll find this in the book. So get yourself your very own copy of Protein Aholic by Garth Davis, MD. Its official pub date is coming up in a few days. So order it now, and then you'll have your copy hot off the presses. The questions are Are you overweight? Do you have high cholesterol? Do you have irritable bowel syndrome? Do you have hypertension? Are you constipated? Do you suffer from diarrhea? Is your skin marked with acne? Are you often tired or lacking energy? Do you have brain fog? Do you get sick often? That almost seems like question number 11 should be, are you an American? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you, I mean, this, it, look, it's what I see every single day in my office over and over. I, we do what's called a review of systems when we see a patient, and I go through that, those questions, and it's yes on just about every question, you know. Um, do you get constipation? Yes. Do you get diarrhea? Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, and uh, it is. It's America. And it's. The, it, it, I think it's crazy for us not to realize it's the food we're eating that's causing all these problems. And yet, if one looks at some of the other books that are out there that have done very well in the world, and I'm thinking about the grain brain and the wheat belly, and I've known people who just, you know, you called some of the high-protein stuff a cult, and it really does seem like that. I feel like I have known kind of wheat belly Scientologists. <laughs> that right, right. It's so. The, I mean, the difference in my book is I really, really tried to get down to. First of all, there's sections on there discussing about what is good science and what isn't, and how you could differentiate good science from bad science. I go into those different books in in somewhat detail too, and every statement I make in this book. I mean, I stu- I, I researched this book for years and years, so it's not just my experience. But um, I th- they made me cut down some of the references, but I believe there's like 600 scientific references, and every comment I make is backed by a scientific reference you could look up, uh, and only peer reviewed, only the top journals, only the top scientists, and that is mis. I mean, if you if you read. Um, wheat belly, or, uh, you'll, there's very little science. Most of it is complete speculation. The other thing I do is look very critically at what have our ancestors eaten that kept them from these diseases that we're getting now? What do cultures 
that live long, healthy lives actually eat? And how does that differ to the way we eat? And so I kind of um, try to make this into somewhat of a story. You know, let's go to Okinawa and see what they're doing. Let's see why their use of this food is associated with less diseases and how it's similar to what they eat in Sardinia where they're also, uh, you know, very healthy people. And so uh, I, I really try to get into um, epidemiology, into basic science, into randomized controlled trials, really sum up all the science that's out there from the biggest and, and, and top journals. Well, you certainly seem to do that, and you've done it in a very readable way. And I do want to give uh, a shout-out to Howard Jacobson, a Ph.D., who uh, helped with the writing of this book. He's worked with Dr. Uh, T. Colin Campbell and, and others um, to really help make the scientific information accessible to, to lay people. So you guys have done a beautiful, beautiful job with this. Now, we've talked about obesity. We've talked about diabetes. The thing that is almost too scary to talk about, but everybody is walking around afraid of it, is cancer. Is there a connection? Oh, I mean, huge connection. Uh, a huge, undeniable, can't-miss-it connection. And the funny enough, when you look at these studies, there's a connection. I mean, you, know, you look at, like, you know, if you look at vegans compared to uh, meat-eaters, there's a connection. Uh, meat-eaters get more cancer. But the, the funny thing is a lot of these studies actually downplay the plant-based diet's effect because we know for a fact that weight is one of the biggest factors. So the more you weigh is a huge factor on whether or not you'll develop cancer. And all of these studies, because we know that weight is a factor that, that can lead to cancer, they control for weight. And otherwise, if they're going to compare meat eaters to vegans, they make sure the two groups have the same weight, which is a non-obese weight. So really obese people are taken out of the study. That's what's called a, a regressions analysis to make sure there's not factors that bias the results. But the problem is that that's what we call over-adjustment because one way that a plant-based diet works is it makes you lose weight. In every study, vegans weigh less than vegetarians who weigh less than meat eaters. And, uh, and so that's one way it works, and that way is taken out of these studies. So not only does it work, but it probably works even better at preventing uh, cancer than we actually even know because these um, studies that I cite are actually biased against plant-based diets uh, as far as the statistical setup. Well, that's fascinating. So yeah. even our enemies have to give us some points. <laughs> I like yeah, that. Yeah, well, that probably won't happen, but yes. So one of the um, many, I mean, everybody who's, who's anybody in the plant-based nutrition world has given you a, a glowing endorsement for Proteinaholic, and one of them is Robert Ostfeld, uh, MD, cardiologist uh, up here in New York City, great friend of, of Main Street Vegan, and he always says, I want to put cardiologists out of business. Well, it's sounding to me like you're doing a pretty good job of putting weight loss specialists out of business. So I just wanted to ask you, as someone who really did struggle with obesity for a very long time, I mean, by the grace of God, and for me, it's a combination of being vegan and, and being an Overeaters Anonymous. I really needed to change just how I looked at food and life from the inside out, and I've been fortunate to be free from from binge eating for 31 years, which just makes me celebrate every time I think of it. But I do know a lot of people who feel I have to get the surgery. I can't 
I just can't do anything else. And yet I'm always thinking, but then you only get to eat little bitty amounts. And if you're going to eat the food that's really good for you, you need to eat a lot of it. So where does the surgery fit in with all this? Yeah, I mean, I look at the surgery, like I look at the medicines, like I look at the whole process of of weight loss, which is, it's a tool. Um, I, I would love to put surgery out of business. I think the problem with surgery is that it works too well. And so it's now become really a go-to. And even in my clinic, because part of my clinic is, is just medical weight loss and part of it's surgery, you can't compare the results. I mean, the surgery people do far better than the medical weight loss people because, you know, the surgery makes it where you eat less and you're not hungry. And, you know, that's the ultimate in changing people's behaviors. I look at the surgery as an opportunity to change someone's diet because this is the one opportunity in their life where they're really going to stop and try to make huge changes because they really want to be successful. And so I look at the surgery as, as kind of a tool in that situation. It's It, it doesn't it, – it's – you know, it's not going to work for everybody, especially if they do what they've always done, because then they'll get what they always got eventually. You can eat a fairly normal diet, just the smaller portions uh, as you go through the process. I mean, there are people where the surgery, it's just going to work. People that have been overweight since birth, who every family member's overweight, who've tried a million different diets, who went to fat camps at 10 years old, um, they're going to benefit from the surgery. I've had people that were vegetarian now, albeit their vegetarian was not a healthy vegetarian. Um, but, you know, they still struggled with their weight, and the surgeries helped them make better changes. Um, we go through a process with our patients where they have to go on a diet beforehand. I've had several patients who did so well on the diet that they didn't need surgery, and we didn't do surgery. I've had several patients that have stagnated and haven't been able to lose weight then they've done great with the surgery. So it, it's really, I, there's not a, this is the perfect patient or that's the perfect patient. That's really a, a look at each patient individually. I'll tell you that the surgery does unbelievable job for diabetes. I mean, that's one spot where um, the surgery really, really shines. Um, and, the, the, and sometimes, you know, you get like a 500-pound patient, it's really hard for them to lose a lot of weight, especially when the weight is, you know, affecting their joints, and so they need that extra help. Yeah. Oh, and it's wonderful that you're out there able to provide that, and you also have this other wonderful information that's really very hard to get if you just look at all of the physicians that exist in the world and how many of them are are offering this information. So lucky people that live in Houston or can get themselves there. Now, I wanted to ask you, too, about exercise. I know that you now do marathons and even Ironman triathlons, which amazes me. <laughs> Have you always been athletic, or is this something oh, God, after no. you changed your diet? Yeah, that happened after I changed my diet, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was never much of an athlete, uh, more of a bookworm growing up, I guess. Uh, you know, I played the little sports that you do as a kid, but I never was good at athletics, didn't play any athletics in college, uh, certainly, obviously not in medical school. Um, then after I changed my diet one, you know, funny enough, they, because I was a weight loss doctor, they, the Houston Chronicle wanted to do an you know, a kind of thing on me as a, a healthy person because I should know about health. Uh, but at the time, you know, I was eating my 
meat-based diet, and I wasn't very healthy. So they went and filmed me running stairs. They wanted to take pictures of me running stairs to show me exercising. And I almost died running those stairs. <laughs> um, and the, the, the picture is really funny because I, I, I got really sick uh, and actually threw up after the picture. Um, and so that picture was kind of like, oh, my God, I need to change my life. I mean, I really need to do something different. And I was so impressed because I kind of thought you couldn't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, and when I changed my diet, it, I mean, it had – very dramatic results for me. I mean, I immediately felt better. Uh, my cholesterol just bottomed out. My blood pressure got better. I felt more energetic. And I thought to myself, now, if I could make this huge change, maybe I could start, you know, being more active, run a 5K. And then it's like, wow, I could do that. Why, let me try this. Let me try this. And, you know, kept leading up to me, continuously challenging myself until I did an Ironman triathlon, which was quite a feat. But uh, I did it all plant-based and uh, did really, really well, uh, especially considering I wasn't an athlete to begin with. Oh, that's wonderful. That's exciting. So for regular people that just, you know, maybe they got 20 pounds to lose or, or, or whatever, how important is the exercise? Or if they get the diet, can they get by on the couch? Um, you know, it's. I really think it's a combination. I mean, the recent literature is, is looking less and less at exercise, but I think the problem that with literature that looks at exercise is it's looking at what I typically see in Americans, which is like 30 minutes, three days a week, you know. I go to the gym. I work out. You work out? Yeah, when? Well, on Mondays, sometimes Wednesdays. You know, what are you doing the other days? Nothing. And that, I think, the problem is. In fact, I think the problem is more a lack of what we call NEAT, which is non-exercise activity uh, compared to actual exercise. And so if you look at the parts of the world where people live the longest, the Okinawans, the Sardinians, the Blue Zones, as they're called, uh, those people aren't going to Gold's Gym. They're not running triathlons. They're not running Ironman. They're walking. They're just active. And that is a huge component of being successful. I actually love the Fitbits and the pedometers because I think getting yourself into a lifestyle and using that as a biofeedback to get you into a lifestyle where you're consistently work, you know, walking 10,000 feet, uh, 10,000 steps a day really makes a huge difference in helping with your metabolism uh, and, and, and helping you keep burning. And I think it helps with weight loss, but it really, really helps in preventing weight regain. That's where I think it really makes a big difference. Well, I'm glad you said that because I, I love my fitness tracker. In fact, I left it at a massage studio and my wonderful assistant picked it up for me this morning and I felt like I've been reunited with a friend. But even living in New York City where we walk a lot, 10,000 steps, that's a lot of walking. And I've wondered the importance of the 10,000 steps versus actually getting into the gym and sweating. Do they do different things or are they interchangeable? Oh, no, they do do different things. And, 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 it, and it looks like the that the steps are, are probably more valuable. So there's been some studies looking at uh, people that have sedentary jobs and then go for their 30 minutes of exercise a day, and that does not seem to be as helpful in a cardiovascular setting as getting those 10,000 steps. Now, the workout, like when I, do, when I check my steps, I count my workout as part of the steps. I don't do 10,000 plus a workout. Um, but, yeah, the, the studies are mainly on 10,000, but here's the here's the real fact, if you're doing 4,000 now and you go to 5,000 over the next few weeks, that's an improvement. 
uh, that's going to help. If you get that 5,000 to 6,000, that's going to help even more. And so it, it doesn't need to be tomorrow you need to do 10,000 steps, but I do think people need to be more aware of just how sedentary they are and just how shocking 10,000, you know, 10,000 steps is a lot of steps, and people, I think, downplay that, and they need to learn how in the course of the day they can get more steps, parking further away, taking the stairs, going for deliberate walks, walk breaks and things like that, uh, or going for a walk before or after work in, in order to get a more active lifestyle in general. And walking past the McDonald's and the steakhouse and reading Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It by Garth Davis, M.D., with Howard Jacobson, Ph.D. Read this book. Share it with anybody that you know who is always saying, where do you get your protein? And, oh, gosh, I'll feel better when I finally lose this 20 pounds. Dr. Garth Davis, thank you so much for taking the time to be in our show today. May everybody in America who has ever said, oh, gosh, my waist disappeared, read your book and change their lives. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. I look forward to meeting you. I think we're going to be at a thing in Austin in the spring together. Oh, Are great. Austin Health Hoopla. I think I saw your yeah. name on there. We're going to be speaking somewhere at the same place. Same oh, time, great. same place. <laughs> Thanks ever so much. Everybody else, thank you for being with us today. Thanks to Danielle Legg for saving chickens. Thanks to Dr. Garth Davis for saving lives. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting this program. And to all of you, God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Reverend Paulette's mantra is, it's all a prayer. Tune in every Tuesday as Unity Minister Paulette Pipe leads you in meditation and prayer on touching the stillness. Make no mistake, this is not nap time. With an energy that will captivate you, touching the stillness will guide you in deep meditation, leaving you enlivened. Hear astounding meditations and learn more about different forms of meditation. Enrich your prayer life as Reverend Paulette, Senior Minister of Touching the Stillness Ministries, affirmatively prays with power and authority by taking live prayer requests from callers like you. Whether you have a prayer request for yourself or for a loved one or are ready for a deepened meditation experience, make sure you tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Central Time, where we'll be joining in consciousness with the unceasing prayer activity of the Silent Unity 24-7 Prayer Ministry at Unity Village. That's Touching the Stillness with Rev. Paulette Pipe every Tuesday right here on Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Letting go.
in the stillness. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.